0: Hosea, chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, Take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the son of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name no mercy. For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land. For great shall be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brothers, You are my people, and to your sisters, You have received mercy.
1: Well, you can keep your Bible open to Hosea chapter 1 if you would. Today we're embarking on a journey, a new sermon series through the book of Hosea together. Um, this afternoon, actually. Um, I was at the hospital, uh, visiting, uh, Matthew Banks, um, in the intensive care unit. I think maybe some of the youth know that he's been there for about 36 hours now. The good news is he's doing a lot better. Um, when I walked in the room this afternoon, he was sitting up, he was breathing, he was smiling. Um, And he had no complaints, quite honestly. Um, But he's been in the hospital with a pretty, uh, he's a high schooler here in this church family. um, And he's been in the hospital after a very severe allergy attack that led to breathing problems and heart problems um and i asked him if i could let you all know so that you can pray for him um and uh and he wanted me to to let you all know he's getting better he's doing well and his number one goal right now is to be at youth group on wednesday night so good for him right good for him um but while I was there in the ICU this afternoon, which is like a real experience right now, right? Like normally you do like the hand sanitizing stuff, but you know, you wear a mask. I had to put on like the full like disposable scrubs thing to get in there uh, this time. Um, it's pretty legit these days. But I, I'm in there in the intensive care unit talking with Matthew and his parents. Um, and oh my goodness, like can you imagine being the parent of a high schooler who has had a very close brush with the end of his heartbeat in the last 36 hours. I can barely imagine what that's like. I'm there in the ICU unit this afternoon, and Matthew's mom, Charmaine, said something that stuck with me. She said, this has been a wake-up call. And I didn't ask her to unpack exactly what she meant, but as I was driving from the hospital over here this afternoon, I was just reflecting on that wake-up call nature of having your high school son in the intensive care unit with breathing problems and heart problems. And I don't know exactly what that meant for her, but but if your son is in the ICU, it gets you thinking about the value of life, Right? If your son's in the ICU, it gets you thinking about the fragility of life. If your son's in the ICU, it gets you thinking about eternity. If your son is in the ICU, it gets you thinking about all of life a little bit differently, right? Things that we thought were so important yesterday, they kind of fade in their significance in the ICU, don't they? There's something about the ICU that kind of helps us have vision that cuts through the fog of things that we invest so much of our heart, so much of our energy, so much of our time in that don't really matter. There's something about the ICU that helps us see much more clearly. There's something about a night in the ICU that makes it a wake-up call for us. And I bring all that up after being at the ICU this afternoon because as we begin our journey through the book of Hosea, we are listening to a wake-up call for God's people. That's what the book of Hosea is. Hosea is sometimes referred to as the deathbed prophet of the Lord to the northern kingdom of Israel because through his ministry, through Hosea's words, he was the last Prophet in scripture to speak to the northern kingdom of Israel before their defeat and destruction and, uh, and dispersion through the Assyrian Empire. But with all of the urgency of a deathbed prophet, with all of the urgency of somebody who has been in the ICU, so to speak, With all of the urgency of someone who is speaking a word from the Lord. The prophet Hosea has something to say to God's people today. Something that cuts through the fog and reminds us what is most important right now for God's people. And taken as a whole, the book of Hosea is summarized. By the words of chapter 6, verse 1, which are echoed again at the end of the book in chapter 14, verse 1. Come, let us return to the Lord. This is the message that cuts through the fog and shows us what is most important for God's people right now. Come, let's return to the Lord's. People of God. Come. Let's return to the Lord. That's the message of God through the book of Hosea to us today. But before we get too much further, we want to pay attention to how the book of Hosea introduces itself to us. And as you heard, as Elizabeth was reading a moment ago, the book of Hosea begins by introducing us to maybe five characters and we'll pay attention to those five people we meet in Hosea chapter 1 in the order that they're introduced. And then we'll pause and reflect on a couple kind of more theological points that connect with our lives today. First, we meet the prophet Hosea himself. According to verse 1, Hosea lives in the days of King Jeroboam the second in the northern kingdom of Israel. And I think we have a little kind of thumbnail sketch of A historical timeline for you, if that helps you get a little sense of where we're at in the middle of the 8th century BC. Jeroboam II reigned for 41 years leading up to the year 753 BC. And what was the cultural climate in that time and place during the reign of King Jeroboam II while Hosea was preaching? In terms of the economy, things were looking really good. It was a time of material prosperity. In terms of politics, things were a little scary because even though Jeroboam reigned for 41 years with military successes, God's people were kind of trapped in between the threat of the great powers of Assyria in the west and Egypt in the east. And so kind of caught in between these great powers of this world, it was a time of political anxiety. And in terms of ethics, it was an era of unrighteousness, injustice, and personal hypocrisy. Things that are pointed out very clearly by other prophets in this era, such as the prophet Amos or the prophet Isaiah. And in terms of spiritual life, this was a time among God's people of increasing idolatry. And so in this time of material prosperity, political anxiety, ethical hypocrisy and spiritual idolatry, what does Hosea have to say to God's people? This brings us to the main thing that we need to see about Hosea himself as we meet him. Look at me again, if you would, at Hosea chapter one, verse one. Notice the very first words of the book of Hosea, the word of the Lord came to Hosea, skip with me to the beginning of verse 2, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, are you hearing a little bit of a theme that this book wants to begin with? What do we need to know about Hosea? The most important thing we need to know about Hosea is that he is speaking the Lord's message. This is what makes him a prophet. These are not just Hosea's good ideas. This is a word from the Lord. Maybe you are new to the Bible. You should know that this book that we have here is a collection of 66 books written by a diverse group of authors who spoke several different languages and lived in different cultures in the Middle East, in Northern Africa, in Asia, and in Europe over a period of more than a thousand years. And in each book of the Bible, we hear the distinct voice, sometimes even the distinct personality, Of each of the human authors of these books. And yet the Christian conviction is that God claims all of these words as his words. All of these words written by various human authors in different languages, in different cultures, over more than a thousand years, God claims these words as his own words. The Christian conviction is that all scripture stuff written by Moses, stuff written by David, stuff written by Hosea. Stuff written by Daniel, stuff written by John. All scripture is breathed out by God and is useful, profitable, good for us as his people. One famous Christian author, way more famous than me, believe it or not. (laughs) One famous Christian author published a book just, I think, three years ago. Suggesting that it's time for Christians to quote, unhitch from the Old Testament. You know what we lose if we unhitch from the Old Testament? If we unhitch from the Old Testament, we lose the Word of the Lord. we unhitch from the Old Testament, we run the risk of missing the Lord himself and what he's revealed to us. Listen, what we read here is not just Hosea's message. What we read here is the Lord's message through Hosea. Do you hear the glory of this? The wonder of it? In and through the pages of scripture, the Lord is speaking. In the pages of scripture, God is speaking. The question then is, are we listening for his voice? This is Hosea. A prophet who is going to deliver to us, not his own message, but a message from the Lord. Look with me again, if you would, at verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer. The daughter of Diblaim. Now we meet Hosea's wife, Gomer. She is a wife who will prove unfaithful to him. More dramatically, more shockingly, she is a wife who will act as a prostitute. This is the very surprising assignment. And it is surprising, it's downright shocking. This is the very surprising, even shocking assignment for Hosea. The Lord says to him, in effect, Hosea, I want you to marry a woman knowing that she will be unfaithful to you. And your assignment, Hosea, is to love her faithfully even when she disgraces your love. And the reason for this assignment is because your marriage will be a living parable. It will be a mystery that will cause others to ask the meaning of this marriage. And in that parable that you'll live out in your marriage, Gomer will play the part of my people Israel, the Lord explains. See, after making a covenant... And after experiencing the covenant love of marriage, she will run away and sell herself to other lovers. Because this is a picture, the Lord says, of how my people have disgraced and dishonored my love for them. They have turned away and sold themselves to other partners. But you are called to remain faithful in order to demonstrate how I am faithful to my promises even when my people dishonor my name. This picture shatters some of our preconceived ideas about God, doesn't it? For one thing, we very often have this wrong idea that God helps those who help themselves. That's an American saying that isn't found in the Bible, but sometimes we think that's what the Bible teaches. God helps those who help themselves as if God's love is offered, but it's really only given to those who prove themselves righteous enough. His love is offered, but it's really only shared with those who prove themselves worthy of his love. And yet here is a picture of God's people not as righteous. Here is a picture of God's people not as worthy. Here is an unflattering picture of us as God's people as unfaithful harlots. And yet the Lord says, this is how my love works. I will remain faithful to my promises, even when my people have disgraced and dishonored my love for them. It's not a very flattering picture of us, but it is freeing if we can accept it. It's freeing because it frees us up from feeling the need to pretend. It frees us up from feeling a need to lie to ourselves and lie to others and and just kind of hide the things that we've done and just kind of bury the guilt and just kind of push aside the shame. It frees us from pretending and putting on masks and and, and imagining that in order to be truly accepted, we have to be fully righteous It frees us from the lie that in order to be truly accepted, we have to first prove ourselves worthy. It reminds us that our Lord's love works differently than we work all too often. It reminds us that what we bring to the table is not righteousness, but unrighteousness. It reminds us that what we bring to the table is not our perfect faithfulness, but a track record of unfaithfulness. What we bring to the table is not our perfect spotless righteousness that we've achieved on our own, but what we bring to the table is a need for repentance and forgiveness. And what he brings to the table is grace upon grace upon grace Upon grace, upon grace, upon grace. Grace enough to cover our sins, to remove our shame. Grace enough to draw us near. Not because our righteousness was worthy, but because of His faithfulness to us. This is the picture that the prophet Hosea portrays for us Of the relationship between God and his people. It's a picture that should call us to freely admit our faults. A picture that should call us to freely confess our guilt and our shame. It's a picture that should draw us to freely confess our unfaithfulness. And then throw ourselves into the arms of his grace. The relationship between Gomer and Hosea will kind of echo through the first three chapters of this 14-chapter book. It's the most memorable and unique part of the book of Hosea, and we'll come back to it next week and pay more attention to it when our text pays more attention to it. But our text today seems more interested in Gomer's children than in Gomer's relationship with her husband. And so as we pay attention to what God is saying here in Hosea chapter one, we need to ask the question, what's up with these kids? That brings us to verse three. Look there with me if you would. So he, Hosea, went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel for In just a little while, I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel, and on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Now we meet baby number one, Jezreel, whose name means something like scattered by gods. Jezreel is also the name of a famous place in the nation of Israel, A place which had been a famous and bloody battle site in Israel's history. Perhaps for Hosea to name his child Jezreel, it would be something like naming your precious little bundle of joy Gettysburg. Or naming your precious little bundle of joy Pearl Harbor. Hosea 1 tells us that this name signifies that just as the dynasty of Jehu, which is... The kind of household of kings that Jeroboam II belongs to. Just as the household of Israel began with violence on a battlefield near the valley of Jezreel, so the dynasty of Jehu will end in violence in a battle near the valley of Jezreel. In other words, God is warning that without repentance, the dynasty that began with violence will end with violence. And sure enough, a few years later, this destruction at Jezreel is what ends up happening in a battle with Tiglath-Pileser III, TP3, as historians call him, of Assyria in the year 733 or 732 BC. But here's why this prophetic word is so shocking. Remember, as... As this child is born during the reign of Jeroboam II, these are days of prosperity. Things feel secure materially. The bank accounts are good. The borders look secure. Life is happy. There's plenty of food to eat. It's all good. Things look good at the surface level. They look prosperous. If you lived in the city of Bethel in those days... You'd feel like things are going great. God must be smiling on us. But Hosea offers this prophetic warning that economic prosperity is not an accurate measure of God's approval. In fact, with regard to sin among his people, Hosea is warning, yes, God is patient. But he is not indifferent. Look with me again at verse 6. She, Gomer, conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name No Mercy. For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. I will have mercy on the house of Judah and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. Now we meet baby number two, ruhama, no mercy, not Loved. See, the Lord is slow to anger with regard to the sins of his people, as the Bible tells us over and over and over and over again. And yet, although he may allow his people to persist in certain sins for decades or even generations, the warning is that judgment is coming. I will forgive them no more. No more compassion, no more mercy. A time is coming of judgment. When the prophet Hosea says, the people will be beyond forgiveness. And he's clear there will be mercy for the house of Judah. There will be salvation from the Lord, but that salvation won't be the kind of salvation. That security isn't the kind of security that can be purchased with weapons or guns or ammo or things like that. It's a kind of salvation, a kind of security that can only be found by seeking refuge, seeking security in the Lord. Don't be deceived in the midst of material prosperity, judgment, really is coming. And no amount of weapons can save you, Hosea is saying. Verse 8. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people. For you are not my people. And I am not your God, this is baby number three, lo a not my people. And now the words of judgment have reached a painful crescendo in Hosea chapter one. You see, in the days of Moses, God had made a covenant. A covenant is a partnership arrangement, a partnership agreement. The best picture of it is the picture of a marriage. Two becoming one, partnering together in life. And in the book of Exodus, we read about God making a covenant arrangement, God marrying his people as it were. And the words, the essence, the heartbeat of that covenant between God and his people sounds like this in Exodus chapter 6, verse 7. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. Do you hear the intimate language that God is inviting his people into? I'll be yours and you'll be mine. This is the kind of intimacy that God invites his people into. And yet after years and years of ignoring the Lord's warnings and continuing in unrighteousness and hypocrisy and idolatry without repentance, the Lord now reaches this point of making this devastatingly painful proclamation through Hosea. It will no longer be, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. No, it will be instead, you are not my people and I am not your God. It's a reversal of what the whole story of redemption is aiming toward. God's people dwelling with the Lord himself. See, there is a judgment worse than losing economic security. There is a judgment worse than losing national security. There is a judgment worse than losing your life in battle. What is worse than to hear the Lord say, Depart from me. For I never knew you. You are not my people. And I am not your God. Whatever you may say with your mouth. We've got to pause here. With these descriptions of these three children. And kind of ask the question. Why is God saying such heavy things? To his people. And notice by the way. This isn't like God's message of judgment. For all the bad people. All the wicked people in the other nations. These are weighty words of judgment. For God's. Nation. Of Israel. Why such strong words of judgment. And the answer is. Because this is a prophetic warning. Warning which is designed to call God's people to repentance. Whenever God's prophets speak a word of warning of judgment, there is an implicit call to repentance and an implicit hope of restoration and redemption. Example, Jonah chapter 3. Jonah goes to the city of Nineveh and he announces God's coming judgment on that city. And he announces very loudly, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. No hint of mercy, no promise of hope for those who repent, just a word of judgment. And yet Jonah himself knew full well the whole time. He complains about it later. Jonah knew full well the whole time that that word of judgment had in it an implicit call to repentance. And a word of hope for those who would repent and return to the Lord. The people of Nineveh understood that in that word of judgment, there was a call to repentance and the hope of forgiveness and mercy with the Lord. Come back here to the message of Hosea chapter one. Why does God warn so deeply, so direly of this coming judgment? Why? Because this is meant to be an invitation to repentance. And it is meant to be a wake-up call to the need for repentance. And it is a wake-up call to the hope for those who will turn to the Lord. You see, the Lord will one day say to many who say, Lord, Lord. He will look at many who are saying, Lord, Lord. And he will say, depart from me. For I never knew you. We know that on the teaching and authority of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And yet for ages and ages, our Lord in his heart of mercy and justice has wooed us with his kindness. He has blessed us with his goodness. And when that doesn't work and we take his goodness and we take it for granted and we run away from him and we sell ourselves to other lovers, what does he do? He gives his warnings of coming judgment. Judgment. He says, return now before it's too late. Return now before you hear, depart from me for I never knew you. Our Lord speaks such warnings in order to call us to repent. It's a wake-up call. And it's a wake-up call for us today. These words are like a giant mirror. This picture is Of Gomer and Hosea. It's a giant mirror meant to call us. And to draw us. To return. To the Lord. And so before we despair. Before the enemy can kind of shackle us. And handcuff us in shame. And guilt and defeat. Before we give up. The passage turns. From this weighty warning of judgment. That is to come. And it turns to the hope. The hope that lies in the future. So look with me again at verse 10. Right after Hosea has has given this demonstration, this word that says, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Verse 10, yet... Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea which cannot be measured or numbered. In other words, the promises that God made to Abraham will not fail to be fulfilled. His loving faithfulness will not fail to fulfill all of His good and precious purposes for His redeemed. And the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. It shall be said to them, children of the living gods. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together. I can't camp out on this for the sake of time, but you hear what's going on here, right? God's people have been living in division for generations. And yet God says, I have a vision for reunifying. For restoring what's been broken by my people's divisions with each other. They shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head. And they shall go up from the land for great shall be the day of Jezreel. And I think there's something that we miss in the English language. Something I needed to read some Some people who know Hebrew better than I do in order to catch this week. But that word Jezreel, that name of that valley, which means something like scattered by God, which was spoken first in Hosea chapter 1 as a warning of the scattering of God's people that would come through the empire of Assyria. That word scattering is used for the way that a farmer sows seeds. And so that word has in itself a double meaning. On the one hand, scattering out. And and on the other hand, planting in the soil. That it may grow up and bear good fruit. And so there is this redemptive reversal in the Lord's vision. This redemptive reversal which reminds us of the hope that's found in turning to the Lord. Although He scatters, He also plants. And then chapter 2, verse 1, which I think is meant to be connected. The chapter markings in your Bible are not inspired by the Holy Spirit, so we can disagree with them. Chapter 2, verse 1, say to your brothers, to whom it was spoken, you are not my people. Say to them, you are my people. And to your sisters, you have received Notice these profound reversals from scattered by God to planted by God. From divided to united. From no mercy to you have received mercy. From not my people to children of the living God. And what on earth does all of this have to do with us 2,700 years later? Here's the point of connection. See, what God said to the people of Israel in Hosea's day applies to the visible church today. Why do we say that? In the New Testament, Romans chapter 9 is a very difficult passage to follow. It is notoriously difficult to understand at first glance, and so if you go home and read Romans 9 and you say, my head is swimming, I'll say, so is mine. It's full of mystery. It's a hard chapter to understand. And yet, Romans chapter 9 gives us an interpretive key for reading the book of Hosea. Because in Romans chapter 9, Paul begins by talking about his love, his yearning, what he calls his unceasing sorrow for his kinsmen in Romans chapter 9 verse 2. In other words, Paul writing as a Jewish person is talking about his yearning for those who are genetically or ethnically part of the Jewish people. Then Paul clarifies that if many ethnic Jews are not beneficiaries of the ultimate covenant, that does not mean that God's promises have failed. Why? Because, as Paul says in Romans 9, 6, quote, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And then he proves that by talking even about Jacob and Esau. Not all who descend from Israel are ultimate beneficiaries of the promises made to Abraham. And then he explains that by God's design, it is not only ethnically Jewish people who will benefit from God's promises, but it is people of faith from all the nations who are intended to be included. The picture that Paul uses is this picture of the nations being grafted into the family. Do you know the picture of grafting? Do you know what that means? Uh, My grandfather, I've told you about him before. He was a European immigrant. He had all kinds of fascinating hobbies. And one of them was grafting plants together. And so I watched him do it often when I was a kid. He would take a branch of one kind of plant Uh, In the Midwest, we do this often with apple trees, for example. You take the branch of an apple tree and you can snap it off. And then you can carefully carve a V into what's left of the branch that attaches it to the trunk. And then you can take a branch of another apple tree, maybe a different variety of apple tree. And you can carve a V of the same shape... And stick it in there so that it fits like a glove, V on V, so that it fits like a glove together and tape it up or bind it up together. And after a season or two, if, you, if the connection is made, that branch, which once was from another family tree, if you will, is grafted in and now organically connected with the rest of that apple tree. So that you can get Granny Smith apples and Honeycrisp apples off of one trunk in your backyard. It is a miracle and a wonder of God's creation. This is the picture of being grafted in that Paul uses for the nations of the earth. Saying it is as if God has carved a V into one of the branches in the trunk of his plan of redemption. And he's taken... You and me and people of faith from all over the planet. And he's pushed us into that place in the family tree where we fit. And he has bound us in so that we can receive the heartbeat, the lifeblood of Christ himself. So that we become a part of the family tree of the story of his redemptive purposes. And then track with me. Paul uses that picture and then he quotes from Hosea chapter 1 and Hosea chapter 2. And Paul says, this is to describe this that Hosea was writing about all those generations ago. This was to describe not only God's plan to unify ethnically Jewish people. This was God's plan, not only to bless them, but this was God's plan for Jewish people and those of the nations, the Gentiles as well. Then Paul quotes from Hosea chapter one and he says this indeed, he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God's. You see, the promise of God's amazing faithfulness is for us by faith today. We aren't just making some wild leap of logic and saying God was nice in the past. Maybe he'll be nice to us today. No, the promise of God is for the people of faith in every generation. The promise of God by his redemptive design is for us If we will draw near to him by faith today, if Paul's logic is a little too thick for us, listen maybe instead to the simple testimony of Peter, the fisherman, who also liked to quote from the book of Hosea. But you, church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Listen to this. Once y'all were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but praise his name. Now, through faith in Jesus Christ, we have received mercy. Brothers and sisters, behold the wonder of the faithfulness of God. Behold the wonder of the faithful love of God which has taken people from every tribe and language and people and nation and brought us together under one head, the Lord Jesus Christ. Behold the wonder of the faithful love of our Lord, who has taken people who left to ourselves, might be enemies with each other, might not get along, might not even like hanging out. And yet he has made us his people together. Behold the wonder of the faithful love of God that we who left to ourselves simply did not deserve His mercy. And yet through faith in Jesus Christ, His faithful Son, through faith in Jesus Christ, our ever faithful heavenly Husband, we are brought into the family. And behold the wonder of the faithful love of God that we should be called children of the living God. See, this is the invitation for those of you who have never truly known his love. The invitation is right now today, come, let's return to the Lord. This is the invitation for those of us who have tasted His mercies and yet we've wandered away. Come, let's return to the Lord. This is the invitation for those of us in this room who feel weary and exhausted and divided and distracted and perhaps even defeated. The invitation is this. Come, let's return to the Lord. This is the invitation for those of us who have forgotten our first love. Come, let's return to the Lord. This is the invitation for all who will come. Come, let's return to the Lord. You see, this is the story of God's people, generation after generation. We were unfaithful. We were scattered. We were not His people and we would not have received mercy. But praise His name. He made a way through the blood of the covenant so that now we are planted together in the unifying reign of Jesus Christ. And we who had not received mercy have received mercy. And we who were not His people are called forevermore children of the living God. And so we are. So come. Let's return to the Lord. I want to invite those who are going to serve the elements of the Lord's Supper to come forward. This is just kind of an introduction to the book of Hosea. We'll dig into this invitation more deeply even next week. And we will dig into these words of prophetic urgency more and more. But even now, as we take this opportunity to take the Lord's Supper together, this is an invitation to us. And I want you to hear this as the word of the Lord for us today. Not just an ancient book about stuff that happened back then. I hope that you hear the voice of God's Spirit calling you, calling us together to return to the Lord's. To come to Him you're here and you're not following Jesus as your savior, we'll ask you to kind of hang out where you are for the next couple of minutes. The reason we make that request that you hang out there while other people are taking the Lord's Supper is because taking the Lord's Supper is a sign of faith in Jesus Christ. To take it without faith is to take it kind of hypocritically, if you will. But if that's you and you aren't following Jesus as your savior, we would love to invite you even today hearing about the wonder of His faithful love for us despite our unfaithfulness to Him, I would love to invite you even today to come to know Jesus.